Rockheads, this is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.poit.com. Net Rocks, episode 1249, with guest Ian Cooper. Recorded Wednesday, January 13th, 2016. Yeah, it's us again, Carl and Richard. Howdy, howdy, howdy. We're at uh, NDC London. This isn't Norwegian Developers Conference nope. London. It's just the NDC. The NDC, yes. Although it started in Norway. And we're in London. We're in London. How does that work? I, I, I kind of like the Excel Center, although people from London don't feel like we're in London no, anymore. Because no, it's a is, fair ways east. Yeah, it is. It's, it's <laughs> the opposite end of the city from the uh, airport, from for example. Yeah, for sure. But uh, the food here is interesting. I can honestly say now that I've eaten reindeer... Ah, congratulations. And kangaroo. They there have kangaroo go. burgers here. They have kangaroo burgers. I swear to God. That's great. Yeah. How does Rudolph taste anyway? Uh, bright. Mm. It's a bright finish. <laughs> <laughs> was it red meat? <laughs> it was red meat, yes. Yeah, so, uh, but now nobody wants to play with me. So Anyway, let's roll the crazy music for Better Know a Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? Okay. Well, there are some API documentation tools coming out here. Uh, DocFX comes to mind. Mm -hmm. But I found one that's interesting. This is on GitHub. It's called Slate. Uh, slate Slate.pwop.me. M-E. And uh, it helps you create beautiful API documentation. And they say to think of it as an intelligent, responsive documentation template for your API. So it supports Linux and OS X, and here's a direct quote, Windows may work, but it is unsupported. Interesting. I notice this is from TripIt. Yeah, it's TripIt, right. That's interesting. But it's still very cool, and, and some alert listeners should fork it for Windows. Yeah. That's what I think. So they don't have to say, it might work, it might not. Let's get it tested, guys. Well, I mean, I'm, I think DocFX is pretty impressive, too, but it's yeah. really designed for specifically for C-sharp projects. Yep, yep. Right, so it's nice to have an open source uh, thing out there. And, uh, you know, nothing wrong with Linux and OS X. No kidding. Yep. So that's what I got. Nice Slate. One, dude. Who's talking to us, buddy? Grabbed a comment off of show 1071, the one we did with Ian Cooper a little over a year ago. We were mm -hmm. talking about hexagonal architectures. Show I really enjoyed because we were just we were talking through that whole concept of ports and adapters and really yeah. organizing architecture well. And uh, Vladik Kononov. I hope I got your name right there, mm. Vladik. Uh, had this great comment. Admittedly, wrote it wrote a year ago, but very mugworthy because he says, "Here's my five cents. 
okay. regarding Carl's question on whether or not it's appropriate to use a hexagonal architecture. When working on a system, you can categorize the business logic complexity according to the following three patterns from Martin Fowler's Patterns of Enterprise Application Architecture book. Mm -hmm. There is the domain model, mm -hmm. where you have a set of entities and business rules that are complicated. The model is best designed according to the domain-driven design patterns and practices, and hexagonal architecture is a must for this type of project. Okay. Then there is the active record. You have a set of entities, but this time the operations on them are not that complex. Most of them are simple CRUD operations, and a layered architecture is fine for this kind of project. And then there's the transaction script, and these are all terms from mm -hmm. Martin Fowler's book. Mm -hmm. The business logic is organized as a number of script-like procedures. These pr scripts are not particularly complex, mostly resemble ETL operations, right? Mm -hmm. And again, the layers will do the job here, but pragmatically, in many cases, you'll do fine without even the layers. Mm -hmm. What Vladik is really saying is complexity lends itself to more formal architecture. Yeah. And I can't argue nope. with that. We, the we more complicated that. and 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 one way you can get complexity is duration. The longer the app sticks around, the more complicated it'll be mm -hmm. long term. So formal architecture, hexagonal architecture uh, approach being one of them, would lend to survivability of that app. So yeah. if I could summarize, it's the simpler the app is, the less this is a problem. Mm. The more complex the app is, the more you need a, a much more formal architecture. Yeah. So Very good. Yeah, uh, Vladik, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read it on the show. We'll send you a mug. And, of course, we tweet. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We like to read them. We may not respond, but we usually do anyway. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So now let me introduce Ian Cooper formally. Ian has over 20 years of experience delivering Microsoft platform solutions in government, healthcare, and finance. During that time, he's worked for the DTI, Reuters. DTI, what's DTI? That's the Department of Trade and Industry. I think you're in the US, it's the Department of Commerce, it's the same thing. Okay. Also, Reuters, SunGuard, Mysis, Beasley, and Huddle, delivering everything from bespoke enterprise solutions, shrink-wrapped products, and cloud services to thousands of customers. Ian is a passionate exponent of software craftsmanship and agile architecture. And when he's not writing code, he is also the founder of the London.net user group and speaks at events throughout the UK. Welcome back, Ian. Hey, guys. It's interesting listening to that. I'd forgotten that I've... I've shipped discs in the past, yeah. <laughs> which you just don't do anymore. No, you just um, don't, for better or worse. I can remember as a junior programmer that the first time that you you ship all the discs and then you then you realize that there's a bug in the disc that just you're just going out to everybody and it's your fault. Yeah, right. And someone explains to you they're going to have to ship all the discs again to the yep. customers oh, to, just, to patch uh, it. And there's that moment of horror of, do I have a job tomorrow? Yeah, yeah right. Uh, yeah. But well, yeah. Back when we incur incurred real costs with a failure to ship. I mean, right. In some ways, I feel like we've gotten even lazier as developers now that everything's cloud distributed and it's just, you know, ship the beta because right. the patch is easy. We've automated updating and it's all available. You, we presume you're on the internet. How many years is Gmail in beta? Forever. It was for, it's probably so, still so in beta. There's right? a model I see, you know, a few people talking about today and... They're saying, hey, this is what you should be doing right now. This, this is what table stakes should be for releasing. You should be releasing probably every day. Mm -hmm. And when you release every day, one of the things you get is that actually what I'm shipping is probably a far smaller number of lines of code. Mm -hmm. I'd be, you know, maybe I'm shipping 300 lines of code that people wrote next day right. uh, at, 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 on, a, on a good day. Yeah. 
And the advantage of that is that finding the defects in what we shipped yesterday is remarkably easy because we didn't actually ship that much code. So right. one of that small number of lines we wrote yesterday caused the problem today. Right. And people say, uh, trying to move away from this model where we think we can catch all of these things in QA. Yeah. Right. You go to a daily model, you say, well, look, we can do basic QA, but we're going to put much more emphasis now on monitoring mm. and we're going to monitor our production environment. Let our customers test it for us. Right. And then, we, <laughs> and then because it's only a small amount of change, we should better find the defect right. file. Right. ship again almost well, it's easy to think in terms of it. you put it out and it happened yesterday that's if it's a big one which you probably should have caught with testing anyway yeah. automated testing it's when it was last week's mistake I think it gets right. a little more complex yeah, somebody does. doesn't exercise that piece of code for a while or they, there's a workflow that only happens at the end of the month and you made the change in the second week of the month and now it shows up at the end of the month and yeah, a little exactly. tougher to dig out yeah I mean, so you still have to have your QA process to try and catch some of that stuff. Well, I, I, I like the, the daily ship model from the point of view of that's how fast our entire deployment infrastructure has to go. Yeah. Like it, it gets back to the Adrian Cockcroft mentality of figure out what's painful and do it often so it becomes yeah. less painful because yeah. it should not be painful. Mm -hmm. It needs to be automated. Right. And we should be shepherds of the automation rather than be the automation. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good tooling out there to help us now. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we use kind of octopus deploy, and I think a lot of people do. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of ways to help us. You know, do that shipping on a regular basis, and it's, it, 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 I think it changes your perspective towards risk a little bit when you are able to release that rapidly. You feel slightly more comfortable that you can react. It's not a hey, we've got a problem, and now the actual problem of patching is as bad as the problem of the defect that we had in the first place because mm -hmm. we have to run through our QA cycle. Are we happy that we can control when to the patch? What does that actually mean? And that used to be quite complicated. Yeah, you know, well, you'd, it, you'd be, it, you'd a Gordian knot here, right? You're going to yeah. patch on top of the patch, and it's like it gets uglier and uglier and uglier. Yeah. And when I put my IT hat on, it's like, look, the nice thing, when, when, now that I was living in virtual machines rather than hardware, and I don't, you know, update anything. I just build a new VM and shoot the old ones. Mm -hmm. And I'm, everything operates from a package. It's not so much that I can count on you as a developer fixing stuff fast. It's that I can get back to the old version really quickly. Right. You know, exactly. old version worked. I'm going to go back. Yeah. You let me know when you clean up that mess you made. Yeah. So uh, you've been thinking about service discovery for a long time. And when I think about service discovery, it brings me back to the early days of .NET with UDDI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, would, I need a I need a zip code database. Uh, yeah. Where do I find that? Yeah. Well, of course, that was you know uh, the days of soap and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, web services with being a set implementation, back, right? Yeah, yeah. Even before and that, yeah. Of course, you know everything everything old becomes new again, and uh, the three of us are obviously old enough to have seen these things pass through several times. But you know, service discovery is rearing its head again because of microservices. Right? Yeah, we have a lot of them. How do we yeah. keep track of them? Right, all? exactly. And I, and I always said, to me, I, I think currently I, I see two kind of schools of microservices, right? And there's the the, S the SOA schools, the guys who did SOA to Gorilla SOA, slowly right. began to move this from something very formal to more point-to-point. -point. Mm. And then there's the guys doing um, more the model of microservices, which says we love the Unix pipes and filters command model of composition, and so we want really small pieces. And both these people are talking about a similar idea, mm. shipping a lot of individual components rather than shipping one thing. So and I can break them around. run multiple instances of them. Right. Um, and either way, your problem now is that, that uh, I have, where I've gone from my monolith, it's easy to understand my dependencies. I ship my whole web uh, property as one, and I don't really have to worry about, it's all in process, right? Right. 
as soon as I now I have a preschool right. right filled with little children that you need to keep track of exactly yeah well and they update at different times so you, this as soon as my service I mean I'm a WCF guy right I did mm. this, the SOA thing and as soon as my system got anything as soon as it, there was some Java involved as well as soon as there was more than one team involved we cannot do synchronized release. It's just not going to happen, mm. right? The bottom line was, these guys are going to ship an update when they ship an update, and you're going to ship an update when you ship an update, right. and we're going to have this bus that we're all going to talk on, mm. and you're never going to take away a service that I'm calling. Mm. You're just going to build a new one, and when we're ready to move to that, we'll move to that. And that became really, that's the place where I saw discovery work was there, on the bus. Mm. It was internal, right? Maybe over a WAN, but it, and really what you're doing was calling out a name, Mm-hmm. Is there a service called X? <laughs> Roll call. And certain <laughs> number of them would respond, right? Yeah, and right. you always presume that was all. Yeah. Right? And the nice thing there was I wasn't dependent on an IP address anymore. Right. So you could take down a service, but you stood another one up somewhere else. And when I called out to the name, it's the one that responded. <laughs> Off we go. That, to me, makes sense, right? right? As soon as I'm bound to an IP address, I'm doomed, like, it's going to kill me sooner or later. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of us have this position when we begin to move into more of a microservices environment. We have these configuration files, which yes. are loaded with vast numbers of IP addresses for all the things I have to talk to. And yes. even if I'm not talking directly to HTTP services and I'm talking to um, some kind of lightweight broker like RabbitMQ yep. or something like that, I still have to have the address of where I'm talking to the broker on. And so I've got these configuration files, all these addresses. And the other problem is every time I move through an environment, I mean, my staging environment or my you know, QA environment, before I go to production, they've all got different um, uh, IP addresses in those different environments. And so part of my problem is that I have to come up with some templating scheme whereby we generate our actual config files for deployment onto each one of our individual environments. And then somebody gets that wrong and we release something out to production and that isn't actually there. Yeah, it's trying to call to the test database yeah. that it can't reach. <laughs> you know, or there's a worse, and I've had this happen, where we were running tests on a set of a, a set of software that was speaking to the production database, right? Yeah, and we're, we're writing fake, uh, uh, you know, records into Oops. the production. Yeah, we, we weren't quite as bad. We had a, a QA and a staging environment both talking to the same database, which actually we discovered that our, you know, that was quite useful. We discovered that our our, our sharding was actually pretty effective if we wanted it to be. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so another issue with you know, like you say, in terms of the problem is one, right? And when you get to microservices, and you know, if I've got my my service foo that I depend on. And that service is, is down, and then yeah. everything else essentially depends on that can't work. And You're down, down. You can get a yeah. cascade effect across everything. And so sure. I, I never want one, I want two, mm-hmm. uh, or three, or, you know. Yeah. And so you know, we, we've done this before, right? Web farms is the way that we've always solved that problem. And, yeah. and so. And load balancers. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Load balancers. And, and so the problem is how do I internally, when I'm building all these services internally that actually become the replacement for my monolith, how do I make sure that I, I can talk to two or three or four, a pool of these right. items? So service discovery really comes up again and again when we, when we talk about service architectures. And it's this idea of saying, well, I, rather than having baked into somewhere, I want to try and find a pool of services rather than, say, find one service. Right. And it's kind of simplest level. Actually, you know, you, you still operate in config. So you can still operate and say, well, on my config for my client, and I mean client in the sense of the role, client and server. So you may be still, still two back-end services talk to each other. But the, the simplest level I talk about with people is you say, well, actually, you could list a whole set of your services, right? Yeah. And that gives you the redundancy option. That gives you an, of saying, 
I actually have a pool of services and I can run through my pool and if one's not up, I'll talk to the other one and actually I can balance my load across a number of those items. And one of the examples I use is if today you're using something like, if you use Redis and you use probably the service that Redis client, uh, if you're using Redis, potentially I expect to use Redis, you'll find that what it does is says, well, quite often I have a leader follower arrangement in Redis and I'm talking to some of my followers. If I have a pool of followers, you just essentially bake into your local config what your followers are and it round robins through the ones that you're interested in. Does it, it seems like DNS solves this problem. What is, right. how does, how, why do we need anything more than DNS? Sure, so we'll, we'll come to that one, right? Okay. So, so the issue with local config, uh, which is you're trying to, which, which is where this kind of DNS ideas come from, is that mm. obviously that needs to get updated in all the machines. And that's, right. and that's I've, I've created, I took away one problem and give myself a new problem. I still in this world of config. Right. So right. really what I want to do is ask some questions or something elsewhere where I register rather than have it locally. Okay? Right. And so this is where... You don't want to own that problem, basically. Right, exactly. You don't want the host file solution. Exactly. You want the yeah. DNS solution. Yeah. So, so there are a number of these toolkits out there, console, zookeeper, etcd, which is where they all come from, that essentially zookeeper. are... Zookeeper, I love Exactly, it. yeah. It's a good name. Um, <laughs> uh, doing essentially a service registry. So they say, you can talk to us and we, you can find services. And generally they have two kind of protocols that tend to support. One is um, some support DNSSD. DNSSD is the service discovery version of kind of DNS. Right. And it has a kind of long history. Um, the, the kind of one that people uh, may be most familiar with is if they've got an Apple product and they've got Bonjour, which which kind of talks to all their right. printers, et cetera. That's essentially yeah. using DNSSD. So it's like not just looking up the name, but maybe some metadata that's associated right. with that. Yeah. yeah, so you have these kind of uh, serve and text and uh, rep records which essentially give you some metadata and they give you actually the, where the service uh, lives. Yeah. So you can use DNSSD, you can query DNS and say, okay, find me my services. Now actually in .NET land, it's a little bit hard um, because most of the built-in .NET libraries work only with uh, DNS registered with, with your actual machine. Right. So if, it, so if yeah. you want to have a separate uh, tool which says, I'm going to host DNS and you query me, that gets you into a lot of redirection from that to the other one. So um, actually using HTTP JSON is just as easy in a lot of cases if I'm talking between two services internally and quite a few of them support that model. Mm -hmm. um, there are um, a number of uh, open source projects out there for .NET that do give you a DNS uh, library which will enable you to actually start saying, well, I want to query a custom DNS service separate yeah. from the one that's actually on the machine yeah, if, you, yeah. if, you, if you prefer that route. Um, but generally, uh, HTTP plus JSON is a pretty good route for most people nowadays. And generally, most of these things, uh, uh, you, you could they're, they're fairly straightforward. And one of the reasons I try to talk about service discovery is to demystify all this, right? Right. Because people flow around these things like, oh, Zookeeper, ATC, console, everyone goes, wow, what is this complexity, complex world that I don't really understand over here? Essentially, most of them are just key value stores. Yeah, yeah. That's really sure. what it is. Preferably a redundant one, right? Yeah. Like, right. And exactly. So the problem is, I, I, there are two things. I can put all my config in this key value store, but my problem is I don't want to introduce a new problem. So I've got my client, and I say, well, rather than hard coding into my local config file the, the, where my pool of servers lives, I want to ask some service, and I'll say, all the things that essentially have this service identifier, my like orders or whatever, effectively, right. I'm going to give me all the instances of that that you have. Um, and so I get that back. But now my problem is, well, I have to find my service registry. Yes. So when if that? it's down, everything's well, down. Yeah, where does yeah. that live and how, right. and how viable is that? So right. a number of them tend to work by, so for example, console works with the idea of having a local agent 
on the same node as, the, as me. So I, I talk to my local agent. It figures out where actually the servers are that hold the catalog. Right. And then you, you're into the world of a distributed database where mm-hmm. essentially you're trading off between your consistent and partition-tolerant model and your availability and partition-tolerant model. So this, this is CAP theorem, this idea that essentially I, I can either say to you, um, hey, I want you to give me an answer even if that answer is slightly out of date. Right, or, but it's more important to get an answer right. than to get the latest answer. Or I want you to give me an answer that essentially is, is everyone agrees is, is the up-to-date answer. Right. And if you can't give me that answer, don't give me one at all. Right. Hey, Rockheads. As Richard and I travel the world for the Azure World Tour, we're telling people all about our dev-centric friends at Stackify. They've been awarded PC Magazine Editor's Choice for Application Performance Management stating, and I quote, the depth of application information provided by Stackify totally outshine the other products in this category, end quote. Because Stackify so successfully integrates errors, logs, and metrics into a core APM plus tool, it's a must-have for .NET developers, which is why PC Mag's Paul Farrell calls it one of the best infrastructure management services of 2015. Try Stackify now for free, and they'll ship you their coveted Developers Against Humanity card game. Just activate your account. Use the link bit.ly slash netrocks to build better apps faster and get your free game. Do you see the clients participating in the discussion about the services being available? Like, do we go that far? Okay, yeah. So quite a lot of them then do the whole thing of saying, well... Okay, now I'm going to ask you for this list of items, and you're essentially quite highly available, and you're so you're no longer my point of failure. I'm going to get my list back. Part of the problem could be is, but what, what guarantee have I got that any of these items in the actually list work. actually yeah, work? Right. Yeah. So then most of them tend to support some kind of health check. So generally, health checks are kind of push for push or pull. Either you register with the um, the, the service agent a endpoint on your service that it polls and says, "Are you still alive?" Um, uh, or essentially, the your service essentially registers like a lease and says, "Okay, I'm going to register myself, and in five minutes' time, I'll come back and tell you I'm still alive, and in five mm-hmm. minutes' time, I'll come back and tell you I'm still alive." Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the advantage of that one is kind of the exit's very easy because it's, yeah. you don't, I don't really have to deregister myself. No. Problem with deregistering. You don't my, hear from me again. I'm gone. All right. And yeah. the problem with the, you know, deregistering yourself can be well, if I die, do we right. know that I have to register? Or I'm just right. just. Oh, I'm just you basically feeling your unwell before you died? Yeah. <laughs> so the health check, I could just be feeling unwell. So do I take so you out completely? Not or dead yet. I mean, yeah. <laughs> feeling better. Yeah, so I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm well, feeling I mean, better. Does it, yeah. Does it make more sense for the registry to be pulling out to each of those services and say, how you doing? On a regular basis, uh, like, y- yeah, is I mean, that a better solution? Uh, uh, well, it's the it's the age old issue of um, uh, if I poll you and I don't get a response from you, then I, t- I can put you on the unhealthy list. But I don't know necessarily whether you've just you shut down right. or you're or you're sick or poorly or whatever. Or you've expired. Whereas the advantage of a lease is in the sense that uh, if you stop sending me items, I'll just take you off minutes. the list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it saves traffic, actually, right, is what it yeah. does. Um, but the, the implementation of a health service status endpoint that you just hit, most people have those anyway. It's very right. easy to get an HTTP endpoint that just says, hey, I'll give this address for the register, and it just says, yes, you know, 200 yeah. OK. So that's very easy, whereas you know, there's a little bit more complexity in saying, uh, I have to, on a timer basis in my service, remember to wake up and register myself with you. Right. So quite often, we tend to see the, the polling model as just because it's simpler. Mm-hmm. Uh, most most folks to implement, but 
Yeah, yeah um, the, so the idea is that, you know, that means I take away from my client and push onto the server the, the, uh, the catalog. And so my client just gets a list back of places you could go and then it, has, it implements some kind of round-robin algorithm, et cetera, and just says, simply, I'm going to iterate through these things and uh, find myself a server that I can talk to and respond. And then that right. way you, you remove this problem of saying, I don't know where you are um, uh, and I don't know how many instances of our, I don't know which ones work. And that lets you get to this point where you're saying, well, I depend from, on my foo service now, my new architecture, so I can have multiple copies, so I can survive the failure of a single node right. and keep running, uh, and I just, I'll just move to a, non, to, to a healthy node now uh, whenever I make my call. So you see that sort of as, a, as, as the client lights up, it gets this list, right. and then it works its way through it as it uses it. it how, I mean, how often should you re-pull for the list? Yeah, that's a great question. So, uh, you know, um, the danger with not having a... The, the, the trade-off between the interval of polling, obviously, so you're taking activity to kind of poll for the list. Right. Uh, and the uh, cost to you of hitting one that is actually unhealthy and having to essentially retry that operation. Right. Mm. So we were mentioning you guys, uh, earlier, Carl, that um, you guys have picked up uh, Poly to do right. the maintenance of that. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was saying that this... Uh, I work on Brighter. It's been mentioned by the kind of ThoughtWorks and their tech right alongside Poly. We, mm-hmm. we use Poly quite a lot, this yeah, yeah. great retry model. So there are ways now of writing some fairly straightforward code, something like Poly, that will do that retry for you if you need it. Right. So you can cope with a little bit of failure. But obviously, it's, it's kind of wasteful to have to um, retry the operation and see if the server's going to come back to life after it's appeared to be sure. offline for a while. Or do you just move to the next one? And then you move to the next one, yeah. But obviously, you know, it's, it's worth having a combination of both strategies because even if I have a health check, there's going to be a gap at some point, right, where yeah. effectively uh, the health check hasn't polled you, so I think that you're healthy, I get the results set back. It also says you're healthy, I call you, and it turns out you're not. Right. So at that point, I really want to then iterate through my list on my retry and say, well, retry, um, but retry on, some, on, on a different server now. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that means I can just redirect my traffic to somebody and often, who can service it. Often you don't get a response because of something between you and the network it may, and, and, the, and yeah. the service. It may be the network. It it's, may not. it's surprising how effective retry is as a strategy. It really is. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, you'd think that it's kind of almost the brute force and ignorance approach, but they're just transient issues that, yeah. that affect you. Packets get lost. Right. So we come back to the, the file uploader app. Right. Right. And this was the first thing. And th- I did my own retry. I didn't use Poly for that. But, uh, you know, you can just upload a file and forget it, close your laptop, come up on a completely different Wi-Fi network, mm. open it up, and it picks up where it left off, and the file Keeps gets going. uploaded. Yeah, 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 exactly. It takes a little while to get going again, but it does get... The main thing is what got up there doesn't get lost. Right. I mean, even I've had cases where machine, machines crashed, had to start the app up again, say, transfer this file. It goes, oh, well, you're already 50% through. I'll yep. pick it up where I left off. Yeah. Right. Like, perfect reliability isn't necessary. Don't lose the work yeah right, right. that's exactly. what makes people happy that's you right didn't I, I don't care that i had to jump all the hoops again it's that oh and then we got to start over too awesome uh, yeah. right? like, <laughs> there it's really interesting to think that way uh, just about don't lose the work mm-hmm. like, mm. thinking about this particular problem of a retry and so forth so you get x way down a transaction and then you can't get to a service you're 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 hosed mm. you're not gonna you're not gonna survive now Saving this transaction as far as you've gotten isn't the important part. The important part is saving the information that the user has contributed so that you could start it over four of them. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's enough. Mm-hmm. Don't make them enter it again. That's what makes people angry. 
The fact yeah. that he's like, hey, I've had a problem. I will fit. It's not up yet, but I haven't forgotten anything. I'm going to try again. Yeah, we've all had right, So this is where, of course, people bring in queuing technologies. So queues are a really valuable technology yeah, to use. Sure. Story. You essentially offload some, some to a queue and say, look, when you... When, when, when the other endpoint is woken up again, dispatch all the, work, all the outstanding work that's living on my queue to the far end. And I like the way that queues deal with reliability so that, yeah, you've, you've started working on this transaction and then, then you lost the connection mm. and the queue item drops back to where it was mm -hmm. so that the next time you have a connection, you can actually get but they, it, it Like you're saying, you, you have one solution introduces other problems. You have the problem with queues of duplicate entries. You know, you... you push something through the queue it doesn't come out the other end you're like oh well let me just keep hitting that elevator button you know because it's not the door's not opening i gotta yeah. keep hitting that so then of course you need potency and so there are a couple of routes to that you can use quite straightforwardly one is simply what if i replay the command it has exactly the same effect and no one notices right the other is you simply establish that you know you give your operation in the queue a, a GUID or something and you say right. well if I've uh, spent a list of what you've seen already and you say yep. have I seen this one already I've seen this one already discard yep. it I don't actually need to see that one to, to play out that one again just things you have to think yeah. about yeah so we um, you know, it's interesting the point we, so the open source project I work on Bright to one of the things that it does is we, got, we talk about so, so we have a model where we do the, the very basic uh, command dispatcher pattern where essentially you can say oh I'm going to um, take a command at my endpoint, I'm going to raise that, have a handler somewhere, I'll separate the parameters from the handler, mm. and that handler is going to do my work for it. And when we're doing that is in process, we also you do it over, over a work queue. So that's using a queuing technology like Rabbit, and essentially we say, we, we put it on the queue, and another service, a different process running, will pick that up and deal with that at some point. And they, there are a couple of advantages to that. One is, I get the work in, and I put it on the queue, therefore it's safely held. Mm. Something will process this now at some point. Mm -hmm. Second thing is I can actually act back far faster to my customer. I can say, hey, I've got I've got your request. Yeah, you know that the elves are going to go away and deal with that. Other than the, right, and yeah. the, we'll in, let in you know. Now we'll let you know when that's done. <laughs> yeah, we'll um, be back. <laughs> right, and that's a, it's a, it's a, and it's a great way of throttling because uh, you can receive more work on your small number of servers mm. because you're never actually taking much time on your web server right. to deal with requests, and, and you're so, never making the customer yeah, wait while you deal with it. Yeah. You process things on the queue at a rate you can afford in terms of your backend infrastructure. Absolutely. Um, Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, time to call the zookeeper to find out who put the caribou in the lion's cage. <laughs> <laughs> who did that? Who would do that? I don't know. It's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, have you ever used a product that was so bad you wondered whether the people who created it had ever used it themselves? Telerik has been building the best UI controls in the world for over a decade now, but more importantly, they've been using them in their own projects. That means they know what it takes to build real-world applications. And Telerik knows what makes developers want to pull their hair out, having shed some of their own. No more silly Northwind demos. Get real UI for real applications. Download Telerik DevCraft today and enjoy the most complete set of user interface components for .NET desktop, mobile, and web development. Check it out at Telerik.com slash DevCraft. Awesome, buddy. So who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Andrew J. Poole. Oh, congratulations, Andrew. Golf clap for you, sir. Clap for you, sir. <laughs> and Andrew just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. A big pile of awesome, as you just heard, from Telerik, one of our sponsors. And 
uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And now it's your turn, Ian Cooper. If you had 5000 right now to spend on technology, let's go shopping. What are you buying? Um, you know, I, I'm a bit torn at the minute because there are some really cool VR sort of headset kits coming yeah, out. Yeah, the Oculus Rift yeah. is going retail. But one of my only problems bucks. with this is I get motion sickness. My, yeah. my, I, I, I'm one of those people that an ex-partner of mine said they're on a boat with me. We were in um, visiting... Uh, Thera, which is um, Greece, yeah, yeah, Greece, a big volcanic caldera. We're on a boat, and when the boat is in the harbour, it'll tend to take us out to the main cruise ship. And uh, we were going up and down, and she said, "I, I did the cartoon. I was literally turning green and aligned up my face." <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, while I love the EV, I said they're very cool. If you tend to find with motion sickness, yeah. they can be a little bit troubling. I know. You know, I, and I was just watching. You know, the, what was it was a surprise when the Oculus Rift came out. The retail price and it's six hundred dollars mm. because the dev kits were three hundred. Three hundred. You're like, well, why is this so much more expensive? And then one of the main things they said was to battle motion sickness, they had to do these custom-made LCD panels that refresh at 90 hertz instead of 60 hertz oh. because some people can pick up on the flicker and it makes them nauseous. So going to that higher rate wow. is supposed to specifically compensate for that problem, but because it's custom hardware, costs more. Yeah, I mean, wow, I used to get motion against playing Quake. Yeah, French enough. Yeah. I, I get. I use the. I have the dev kit. The, dev, the DK and, kit, yeah. and I get nasty motion sickness yeah. from it. And I, I, I didn't find it so much with some of the slow moving games right. and, and things. There was a great swimming with sharks demo that it was <laughs> awesome. But and the, when the shark bites you, it's it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> jump out of my seat but um that seemed to i could do that all day but then there are some of them that move too fast or, or the the sensation of moving i've described it before on the show but it's, it's always it's the battle right you get your brain's getting these signals of rapid motion mm -hmm. but your balance center's not right mm. you know and that that is the the essence of motion sickness right yeah, right is that you're when you're when your balance center is getting signals but your eyes aren't getting them you have a problem. I'm getting motion sick right now, just thinking about it. <laughs> so what would you... A HoloLens then? Because there's no motion yeah, sickness yeah, there. Yeah, better yeah. to HoloLens would be better than the, the Oculus Rift. And if that dev kit's $3,000, yeah, right. so there yeah. is half your money. And I, another one I'm actually quite tempted by is the, the, the new Subspook Pro, which I think has just, just come out in the UK. The which, which one? The, the new Subspook, the Pro one the, from Microsoft, the 4, isn't it, I think? Or? Oh, oh Surf the Surface Pro, Pro 4. Surface Pro, yeah. 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 Which actually I think looks, it's the first kind of time I've seen some Microsoft kit that's actually quite enviable. Well, this is a Surface Book, yeah, mm. which has the removable screen. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. It's really a laptop. The 4 is the improvement on the 3. Yeah. Mm. And it's enough of an improvement that it, I think it was Hanselman was the first guy to say, I loved my 3, then I saw the 4. Now my mm. 3 is crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although the biggest thing I've found folks saying now is the keyboard for the 4, which you can buy separately, is the magic piece. And if you put it on your 3, you will be happy. No, oh, okay. Oh. It's like go buy the, if you if you're not ready to go, you know, give up on your three and, and go to a four. Go spend one hundred and twenty dollars on the new four keyboard and see if that doesn't, you know. Because for the last five years or so, I've been I've been a MacBook user yeah. and I've liked the hardware. Yeah, but I'm kind of paling on some of Apple's 
uh, attitude in terms of uh, it's getting old. the OS. I miss my delete key. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Remember when they told us we just didn't need a right click, right mouse button? Yeah. Where Apple's point of view used to be leadership, now it seems to be archaic. I I, I do wonder if there's a bit of a pattern that that seems inevitable that the market leader in, in, in some areas tends to find themselves just kind of defending their territory. Right. My argument has been for a while now, none of these tech companies are good as leaders. They are all good because they spend most of their lives being up and comers. And the worst thing that can happen to them is they get to the top. Right. Because they don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, how really, if you look at, say, the iPhone product line, it does look as though that's really stalling. Yeah. Um, and they don't yeah. seem to really have the, the, the pressure to evolve that somewhere. We are not looking to Apple for a breakthrough right now. Right. Yeah. How do we get off on this tangent? Oh, the 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 VR thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, is, is that is that the thing you want to spend your money on? VR stuff. Is there like if you had your perfect VR experience, what would it be? Would it be more like Hololens or more like Oculus without the motion sickness? I, I, I mean, I think the Oculus maybe without the motion sickness would be good, but I think I'm just going to opt for Hololens on the basis that that's probably the safer one right but now. But you also think that you that augmented reality ultimately a more useful tool than hmm. the virtual reality, but not as immersive. Um, I think the virtual reality is great for kind of the the, the, the gaming market, yeah. um, but the augmented reality is a very much more interesting overall model. I think as a as a platform. I'd like to be able to many more use cases. I yes. think I'd like to the Oculus Rift if I could walk around and not get sick and see my hands. Yeah, either cartoon, virtual, whatever. Yeah. But so you have that. Om- on you that. have the Omni Tread, so that which is that right. convex thing for your walking, mm. and then you have the Leap Motion mounted on the outside of the Oculus. Yeah, they're so working that you can on see that. your hands. I mean, all these pieces exist. Mm. But getting it perfect, so that your hands are exactly right, yeah. is not a small problem. No. Essentially, the dream is you know the dream is still the Star Trek holiday. Yeah, we all that's, 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 that's what we're trying to head holiday. towards. Yeah. yeah, of course. Can we talk a little bit about brighter? Just uh, okay, let's go for it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just because this is this is I think in a lot of ways this is a manifestation of your earlier show, the hexagonal architecture, right? Yeah. With port, ports and adapters right. and, yeah. and CQRS. But it, I do think it ties into this whole service discussion as well. So I'll include a link on the show notes to this. To talk Paramore Brighter. What are we talking about? Okay, so I mean, the reason I wrote uh, Brighter and made open source is because I'd written it about three times, and I and I decided that if I just produced an open source version, I wouldn't have to rewrite it for the next company they went to. Um, <laughs> and maybe somebody will add to it, right? Some other right. ideas. And the will nice come thing at is it. now we're starting to get we've, we've we've hit enough critical mass that we're starting to get contribution from outside. Yeah, no, I see which fourteen is contributors. Really good. Um, it's it, it's got to be deeply, you know. I've been working humanitarian toolbox for a while, and we I feel like we've sort of crossed this threshold now, where we just have regular contributions now. There yeah. are groups of people out there that like working on the projects that we're doing for disaster response, and there's something very uh, validating about seeing. You know, you had a lot of thought around this mm-hmm. architectural model, you've, and you've manifested as brighter. And apparently, there's a group of people out here who think like that too, and are right. routinely contributing to it. That, that, that's quite a nice idea, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I always picture the two parts. So the first part is the is the simple, hey, if I'm doing some kind of CQRS style approach, so I'm separating between my commands and my queries. We help you deal with the command side of saying, I, I want in my endpoint, my you know, my web API endpoint to say, rather than actually do the work here, I'm going to package it into a command. A command's nice because it's a transactional boundary and it forms a nice port to my 
hexagonal architecture. Mm -hmm. So it's a really easy way of getting that ports and depth architecture going. Mm -hmm. And so I raise my command, which is just the parameters, and I have my handler, which is essentially the code that executes, and it's essentially the edge of my calling into my domain and talking to my other infrastructure concerns. Right. And we do a send, which says I have a command, I'm going to issue it. And then you can also, because you have that infrastructure, do a publish, which says I want to raise an event and have somebody else listen to it. Right. And that basic model is synchronous. That all happens yep. uh, within inside the, the same process, or in process rather. And this, we also said, well, actually, it'd be quite nice if I could do that out of process. So it happens at some point guaranteed later on. So it's always called a work queue. Essentially, okay. I say, um, I want to do this work at some point in the future. And really, I want to, we want, what we said is, I want to better write, it's just as easy to write my handler and write my command, but have that execute in a different process. Right. So what we want to do is provide the infrastructure that takes away all the complexity of that happening from you. And is you. it really a fire and forget kind of thing, or is it still got a callback? So it's a fire and forget model mostly. Right. We, we do, there is a way of getting um, a response back. There's, there's a lot of cases, like you're right. writing to a log, you're you know pushing to a queue or anything like that. It is all fire and forget. Yeah. I don't want to wait. I don't want to think about it. I don't want you to have, I don't want you to spin my ball. Right. Go do this. Yeah. Get it done. Essentially, we say, you know, if you need to do some validation, you do it before you send the command, and then yeah. the handler happens essentially uh, in a different process. Sure. Um, and the other is really, I mean, we support uh, RabbitMQ, Azure Service Bus, and Amazon SQS, and SNS. And we're looking at probably supporting Redis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have a very experimental thing that I wrote around uh, an implementation of called RESTMS, which is kind of AMQP over HTTP. I am probably the only person in the world that's, that's cool. ever implemented that specification. <laughs> um, I know, I know. You'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, so the idea is you, you, we wanted to make it as close as possible to the idea of if I've got a, if I say, so send is how you, you send a command originally, and switch that to post, and just simply taking the same handle you'd write for doing it in process, putting it in your Windows service, and having it able to respond. And all you need to do is a bit of configuration. So configuration is the kind of effort that you have to do yeah. to configure this endpoint to say, okay, I need to listen to my uh, work queue. And when you find these messages uh, on the work queue, then push them out to essentially uh, this message mapper to basically deserialize it. And then it will pick it up and dispatch it to the relevant item. We had all the stuff on the, on the, Threading, for example, model, you don't have to really deal with threads. We have a kind of really classic old school message pump that's reading off your queue, mm. doing a translate and dispatch message, and right. so you're just writing your handler. So really trying to make it as pain-free as possible for the devs to actually kind of do this model. Nice. Um, and then we try and do some management and monitoring around that as well. So I don't know if you guys have seen, there's a Java product called Hysterix, which comes out of Netflix. Um, and they have a slightly different, but... Uh, similar like conceptual model uh, in, in Hysterix of sending a command and that command being working with things like retry, circuit breaker, and being executed mm. elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned Poly earlier. We're saying yep. we, we, you can plug Poly directly into Brighter. We have a, that you create an attribute and say this handler should run in the context of a Poly um, a policy. In mm -hmm. fact, we, essentially your target handler can have any number of handlers beforehand. So we create a chain you can handle in. And we also handle things like fallback. So, my, I, I keep trying this handler, it fails. What do I want to do now? You can yeah. have a fallback piece of code you run to say, okay, what do I do in the event that, event that it all goes wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, we, so, so we try to be try, quite robust on that as well. Um, but also Hysterix has really good monitoring. So what we're looking at now is trying to get much better monitoring in. So right now we're at the stage of being able to add some monitoring that, again, works over our own, works over your own messaging infrastructure. That's our institute system is, how do I send messages to someone to monitor? Well, I'll go back over the same infrastructure. Mm. Right now we can kind of get 
these mess monitoring messages coming out. And right now, our visualization for that is really kind of uh, command line. Mm. We'd like to get some next big project for us is to get some kind of more webby um, sure. graphical dashboard showing you all these handlers in real time as they right. service request throughput, whether there are exceptions, if you're using poly, whether there are broken circuits, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Give you a nice visualization exactly what's happening in your system as it runs. Um, we just had, which, which, the other thing we're just working on as well, we're working on a um, async uh, version of our, our API. Um, so we're adding the async keyword and a lot of async await. And we had a, uh, one of our first kind of real big uh, contributors outside the kind of team where I work at at Huddle um, has kind of pushed on a whole load of work on the async. We're kind of working our way through that right now. Um, it's very cool. Yeah, I mean, async is becoming more. You know, one of the, the one of the issues with async, of course, is that really you need your whole pipeline to be async. So right. you really need to be on a running, you know, ASP.NET and using async um, handlers, and then you get the real benefit. Otherwise, if you just wait in your endpoint, there's really sure. no point in you getting async in the first place. But that model's really, I think, becoming widespread enough now. You can genuinely get async all the way, and so it's worth us implementing that. You have that weakest link problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's the same problem that you know that you're going to get with. Um, uh, .NET Core, et cetera, is essentially you've got to wait. You know, everyone's going to do their bit, but eventually you've got to wait until the whole chain essentially uh, completes the move across. What's been your experience with ASP.NET Core or .NET Core for for that matter? Well, you know, we, 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 we are still, we, we, we love the idea. We think I, I am very much in favor of uh, platforms essentially resetting. I, I like yeah. to liken it to basically like a superhero comic book saying, you know, it's all got much too complicated. Let's have a kind of year zero reset. Yeah, uh, that's great. So that we can get new people joining. And yeah. I think that the platform, ha I mean, you know, I, I would say to people, if someone, if someone got hold of their documentation tomorrow and they said, oh, I want to talk to you into your processes. And they got their documentation, they said, right, so, so we should use .NET remoting, right? And you go, no, no, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, no. Right. Right. And they go, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> so I should be using um, uh, web services. No, yeah, no, no, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> WCF? And you kind of oh, like, no, oh, Sorry. So, so it's, it's a good occasion to have a reset and have a. And, and the trouble is, you, you still want backwards compatibility. So the forking model to me makes a lot of sense. You've got to keep you know people being able to move. It's forward. socially acceptable too. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know when 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 you do this in a closed sourced way, suddenly technology becomes dead. Yeah. Right? And 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 then you're angry with Microsoft when you fork it on GitHub. Everything is fine, yeah. but people are still angry with Microsoft. How's that? Yeah. So, yeah. what is your experience about? Uh, you know, how how's your experience been with people outside the you know Microsoft? Uh, I think there's a lot of people saying, "Oh, my ex is not going to basically be able to take advantage of .NET Core because this thing that I want's not there." Right. There's a slight problem, which is I'm always the special case of my thing. Yeah. yeah. We don't all the other things, but my thing needs to be in there. Yeah. I think the problem is they have to reset at some point, uh, yeah. and they're not killing you, right? You can keep going forward in the framework, but they're just trying to buy time for. Most of us to say, okay, we're going to move our open source lot. So, so, we'll, so what we'll do is we'll support both. Yeah, yeah. because it's also a great sieve, right? Like yeah. at some point, if it becomes absolutely apparent that it's a substantial number of people who are still dependent on something from the old framework, right? Implement it. And you can pull, pull these, thing, these things in progressively. So the idea is yeah. that if, you, if you're moving towards more of a NuGet model, where essentially you say, "Hey, here's this core, and I can pull additional packages." If any one of those has it, is it becomes enough of a sticking point for libraries or switching over to to use what you've got already, you're surely going to do pull the work. Simple. Have, have you had the experience of showing a Linux programmer who's been so anti Microsoft all their lives C sharp and showing the language and things that you can do with it, and just seeing the light bulbs go up? I have, but actually, yeah. I, I, what I'm telling them is quite interesting. They 
said they're very excited because all these .NET developers coming to uh, Linux means there could be lots of consultancy work helping yeah. them basically yeah. figure absolutely. out all the problems that they've got, right? And absolutely. absolutely I mean, you know, it's, it's the, you know, people getting into the basic conversations of, well, what's the equivalent of a Windows service on Unix? Mm -hmm. how, do, how do I get my thing to run, um, you know, when, when this box boots up and keep running? And, of course, a lot of, so it's not even just learning, essentially, how to run my code on like now I'm like on Unix it's learning how do I run in a Unix environment where it's reliable and right. writable yeah and by the way what's Unix yeah <laughs> so, so I, I actually see some of those guys being quite 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 you know um, uh, pragmatically excited about the possibility <laughs> of nothing uh, wrong with that right? yeah what, it's uh, very what, cool. I, I like. what frustrates me is uh, uneducated rejection yeah, yeah. Right. totally it's like, no, I mean, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of baggage, though. You know, oh, there's yeah. a lot of baggage of not trusting Microsoft and being monolithic and all about mm. Windows and stuff. And people just don't realize that it, it's different now. Yeah. No, Things really, it's different. Yeah. Now. And I think, you know, I, I, I try to be optim optimistic on this score a little bit. I mean, I think probably, you know, uh, I, I don't want to age you unnecessarily, gentlemen, but you're probably summarized to me. And I always make the point that when I, when I first started in my career, most software houses, and that's where I spent a lot of my career as yeah. software houses, tended to be polyglot institutions. Sure. You had a number of products, different languages. We were all feeling around for language tools, at the time. Right. Right? You go back to that yeah. 80s time, I mean, it was yeah. a renaissance of language. Yep. Everybody was making a language. Yeah. And I think there was a weird period, I think historically we've seen as a weird period when Essentially, Java was, was, was you know, mm. every, places decide we can have one language to do everything, right? Yeah, right. It runs on everything. Yeah. And I think more now, I think I see us drifting back actually much more towards a polyglot model, which I think is the historic trend, I yeah. think, much more. This is essentially the thesis of a keynote that Richard and I have developed, which is that the age of Windows hegemony is really kind yeah. of an anomaly right. in history. Whereas, you know, in Java being the one language yeah, and yeah. Microsoft being the one platform, yeah, it's kind of an anomaly. And it, before that, we had polyglot computers with Ataris and yeah. Macs and not necessarily Macs, but Apple IIs and, yep. and TRS-80s and Commodores and things like that. And now we have, uh, we're back to where we're we were. Back to the polyglot, right. except and, the know. polyglot hardware is in the shape of phones. <laughs> and, and, and I think there's a place for, you know, C-sharp, et cetera, in, in, sure. in that world. Of course there is. Yeah, I mean, it's know, a great I, language. I, the other thing I talk about, some, we, we were wildly off different topics here. Yeah, but yeah, um, well. uh, the, I, I keep an eye on things like language indexes and job sites. You know, one of the things that's mm. really interesting, I find, is that in terms of the top 10 languages, the, the, there isn't actually that much change. Yeah. There are new languages all the time, but really you're talking about C++, C++ Python, Java, Java JavaScript, JavaScript, C Sharp. But that's also the weight um, of its code base, right? I mean, yeah. just because you've discovered a cool new language doesn't mean your company is abandoning all the software to mm, depend right. on. Yeah. Right? And your job, the thing that pays your bills still, is maintaining the code that, that's been that the company's invested in. Right, and it's more than they have, which are the early adopters and the chasm of adoption, and then sure. essentially, and I think lots of languages fail to make it across that chasm, yes. really. Yeah, the uh, crossing the chasm thing happens with all sorts of, of technology and, and, and products in general. Mm. And you can, if you live in the pioneer world, you fool yourself. Mm. You're living in a 10% space, mm. And the ninety percent behind you not jumping across that bridge. Mm. Yeah. So the only one, one of the people talk about running it that probably will make that jump is probably Swift. And that's mm -hmm. simply because no one wants to program an Objective C. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and now and Apple's turning around and open source it too. So yeah. like yeah. We, we we were teasing about Apple earlier, just sort mm. of being this the, the the old schoolers, and then they open source Swift. I don't know if they know what they've done. Mm. I'm sure they do, but I hope they do, and I and I hope that it goes well because. 
it's an interesting language too. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like that's not a bad thing to have around. It's a modern language. Yeah, it mm. is a very modern language. Yeah. So I, I'm hoping that, you know, as we become more polyglot, we go back to Zelda model, that some of this tribalism will ebb. Yeah. I mean, that's a very hopeful position. I do understand that. But, but I, I also think the old guys, and that's all that's in this room right now. Yeah. yeah. We've done this enough times. We're done with tribalism. Mm, like yeah. a little, it's a little old. It's, it's, it's old and stale. And, and we've stayed in the business still. Rather than us fading away and, and young folks, you know, the problem we have with tribalism right now are guys who've only programmed in .NET for 10 years. Yeah. Right? And I'm, I bet a bunch of them are listening right now. But if you've only worked in this one platform, I mean, Lucky for you that you got in when you did, when right. it was young and new and had a lot of opportunity, and now it's mature and morphing. Yeah. And, you know, you might blame Microsoft for, state, for moving your cheese, but they're really following a market. Sure. All right. And, I, and it has happened before, will happen again. And you must follow the market as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I find it interesting in the sense that, you know, I mean, people, I, I could describe myself and I'm sure it's people would just say, oh, you know, Ian's a .NET developer and he's mm. on C Sharp. But actually, I've probably spent many years as a C++ developer before sure. that. I, yeah. And so, you know, these are, uh, I mean, money what happens. Coding yeah. Z80 assembler. Right. right? Yeah. And 6502 assembler. I, I, I was good at index indirect addressing. Yeah. But you put the stuff aside when the next opportunity comes along. Right. And I, but I think, I think it's How many interrupts can you handle at one time? That's what I want to. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to, 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 to not try and tie yourself to. And I, and you, uh, you tie to, yourself to, to, to technology. technology. And, in, and to be clear, you can do that. There are still guys making a living on COBOL. Right, right. You, yeah. The question is, you know, don't fool yourself as to where you are mm. in the life cycle, mm. right? If you're still working on the same, if you've spent ten years using the same tools, it's not so much you have ten years experience, is that you've repeated that one year of experience ten times. Mm -hmm. All right. There's, I think there's a difference when, when you look at, uh, say, a career path. I think what happens is when you, the young, when, when you first start your career, obviously, a lot of what you have to trade to a new employer is your knowledge of technology and framework X, because you don't actually have a lot of breadth of experience of the fundamentals, the, the pans, the right. practices, You're the right. principles, the techniques that go with being a software and developer. you can't teach that first anyway. Right. That's right. As you get older and you become more experienced, that's actually far more what you're trading. Yes. It's, you're not trading on your knowledge of a given technology stack because the reality is if you, if you work for a company for three years, you probably change the frameworks and tools that you're using during that time period. Yeah. Sure. So really we want to you know, believe that you can reapply your knowledge to those new experiences. Right. So I think there is a break point somewhere in your career where you need to recognize that although early on, yes, it was pretty important that you, you were working on a current You dove school deeply set. into the stack that you had Yeah, you need to move up to get more It's also a very famous knowledge. crisis. That second language is a crisis. Mm -hmm. That first mm. time it's like, I'm leaving my baby, right? right. Like, right. Or, you know, the, like a first love. Like, it's a tough loss to yeah, move It is a loss, isn't that. it? But... Yeah, third, fourth, fifth. Like, you get to a place where... But like, I, see, yeah. I see some guys... Pretty soon you're Elizabeth I, I, I Taylor. Think, <laughs> I think what they're afraid of is they say, well, hang on a minute. You know, I, I'm, the, I'm more senior than these guys. Right, right. I probably get paid more than they do. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I justify that because, well, I know our tool sets so much more intimately than yes. they do. And if we kind of have a... If we introduce a new language and the playing field is somehow level. Yeah. Well, I hang no on a minute. Someone may say, well, why are you being paid more than me? Because what are you... And the answer should be, what you need to look at is you've got a breadth of experience to bring, which yes. will be, once you, once you get over the hump of learning a, a new syntax, you'll be able to apply. But I... 
but you're right this, on the second language the first time that happens to you it's frightening because, you, frightening. because you, you don't see that what, what yeah. happens and like you say third or fourth or fifth time you kind of know hey I can apply yeah. my yeah. and, and uh, the other thing is now you start separating the tooling from the practices right. Right. you know those things start you, you, again you can't teach that in advance it has to happen in your head and suddenly you're at this place where it's like, okay, well, if I'm picking up a new tool set, these are the things I need to practice, right? We mm-hmm. all sit down and rip out a CRUD app on the new tool set. Yeah. And you know, okay, I and, see and, how that's and, done. And I find, obviously, one of the interesting things about learning a new tool set or language is actually that you somehow reflect also upon the choices that were made in the uh, tool set and languages that you may also be more familiar with. And right. it g- can give you a better understanding of them because you're, because something was a, just a default assumption. That's how things work. Right. But I think this is what also sucks the tribalism out of it. The moment you're willing to look at your old tool set and see what was bad yeah. as well as what was good, you realize how absurd the tribalism yeah, is, right? right. Yeah. There were weaknesses in the way we did things that this new tool may address in a different mm. way. You know, that that does have some advantages. There is no one right way. You know, how can you bang the drum like yeah, that? Yeah, and particularly if you think about the environment is changing. So, you know, part of the whole thing with DNS Core is people are deploying in cloud environments. They're yeah. spinning up servers. They basically don't want to have a heavyweight, big install .NET framework. Yeah, it's, it's containers all the way down. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so you need to recognize that, that if, you know, the .NET team are not optimizing for that platform, people will go to a platform that has, has, has dealt with those issues. Yeah. And you've lost those people anyway. And right. so then you're on a, on, a, on a kind of eroding platform. Uh, and you don't want to be there. You'd rather have a platform that was kind of split but current yep. um, than you would be on one that was just had nothing to say about the future. Well, it's happening again, guys. We have to rename this show. <laughs> <laughs> I think we talked about service discovery at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, Ian, if we could summarize the service discovery uh, conversation that we had in the first half of the show mm. that it would be um, it's important it's important when you have your own services even if they're your, your, yours and not for public consumption and uh, we you rattle off some tools Zookeeper right. was one. Yep. Console is the one we, we, we really like. Yeah, DNS, uh, uh, D- D- SD. Yeah, DNS ETCDs S- out there. The D- uh, Sky DNS, I think, is a new player. Eureka, which is from Netflix, but that's more JavaScript. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I think the, the reasonable summary would be as soon as you have a service-based environment, yeah. you need to avoid one of anything, and if you have multiple of those things, you'll need to handle the notion of how do clients find servers? Yeah. And there are a whole set of tools out there which can help you do that in a robust and reliable way so that doesn't become another point of failure. Great. Ian, it's always a pleasure to talk hey, to you, my friend. Great. Thanks. thanks, guys. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. 
See you next time. Transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a